welcome to another episode of The Cognitive Dissident. It's January 12th, 2022, and as of this writing, I have less than 100 Twitter followers, which means I am below even the average user who tweets about nothing of substance at all. So imagine my surprise when I received a pleasant, cordial, direct message on Twitter from a minor Twitter personality with over 68,000 followers. I'd retweeted one of her posts, and she was inviting me to join a site called Rant, spelled with two Ts. She pointed out it was a place for like-minded kindred spirits, and that I'd have direct access to the journalistic contributors. I was intrigued, but I also saw a warning sign in her missive. In describing Rant, she'd added, quote, we screen members to ensure an inclusive and supportive space, unquote. On the surface, that sounded great, but I feared I detected a possible whiff of illiberal censoriousness, one of the very things I'm trying to combat via the cognitive dissident. So I checked out Rand, and it seemed mildly interesting, but also somewhat homogenous in its content, another preaching to the choir site. Clearly, I'm not interested in preaching to the choir, or I would not split my time between scrutinizing the hypocrisies, blind spots, and sophistries of the right with those of the left. Preaching to the choir is boring. I'm more interested in getting people to think, to question both their assumptions and my assertions in a sane and civil fashion. But visions of raising my exposure from negligible up to the heights of merely almost negligible danced in my head. So I decided, yeah, I'll subscribe to Rant, paying 10 bucks a month for the pleasure of being preached to, but only if they'll have me. But before laying my money down, I decided to lay my cards fully on the table. I mean, why waste her time, Rant's time, and my time and money if my divergent opinions would not be welcomed? So I wrote her back an equally pleasant note, asking a couple of questions. I pointed out that although I consider myself a left-of-center guy, I sometimes disagreed with the left and that my first podcast had sided with the right-wing opinion that trans women athletes shouldn't be allowed to compete against biologically female athletes because trans women had unfair physiological advantages that persist even beyond transitioning. Would Rant still have room for me under their tent, which she described as inclusive in her note? I spoke of the growing intolerance of the free exchange of ideas, the rising tide of illiberalism I see on the left that so perfectly mirrors what I see in MAGA land. And I quoted actor Daniel Radcliffe's magnificently censorious rejoinder to J.K. Rowling's comments on trans women. That was it. A simple and I thought civil exchange. Screenshots of her DM to me and my rather long-winded response are available in the document version of this podcast episode on cognitivedissident.info and thedailyscreamer.com if you care to see the entire unedited conversation. I will not be revealing her identity, though. I heard nothing back, but I didn't think too much of it until a full 24 hours had passed. At that point, it seemed odd that such a prolific tweeter would not have responded. So I pulled her up on Twitter, only to find I was blocked. Yes, blocked. Not even the courtesy of thanks, but you aren't a good fit for our site. Instead, my calm, civil response had been met with the digital equivalent of the Iron Curtain, or perhaps a middle finger. I was too repulsive to even countenance. I was radioactive. Oh, the humanity. But truthfully, I was actually shocked. Equally truthfully, I was also amazed that I was shocked. I am always seemingly shocked by this kind of intolerance of other views, at least by people who are clearly intelligent. I know, I know, someone's intelligence does not mean they are open to reasoned civil discussion. In fact, alas, 
Intelligence, mine, yours, anyone's, ironically often carries the water for fixed opinions. The smarter one is, the more likely they'll have a facility for generating self-righteous, closed-minded, nice, neat rationalizations and clever distortions. The kind of intellectual self-storytelling that renders your worthy opponent as stupid, bigoted, evil, less than human. And dehumanization is the name of the game. Will you ever learn, Samuel? I remember years and years ago watching TV interviews of outraged Christians picketing Martin Scorsese's movie, The Last Temptation of Christ. To a person, the interviewees hadn't even seen the movie they were demonstrating against. I remember somewhat smugly thinking that these are the fruits of organized religion, people being told what to think and not even bothering to satisfy themselves by reading their own religion's source materials, let alone seeing the movie in question for themselves, to see if they did indeed agree with what they'd been taught and told. I have to give it to Islam here. Every Muslim I know has read the Quran at least once, but I can count on one hand the number of Christians I know who've read the entire Bible, or for that matter, the number of non-Orthodox Jews I know who've read the entire Old Testament. It still blows my mind that people will grow up in a system where their pastor or a rabbi or a minister tells them what their religion stands for and what they should think, and they never even bother to thoroughly check out the founding books. Organized religion is the antithesis of critical thinking, I told myself, an annoying superior smirk probably gracing my face unconsciously. But alas, the truth is critical thinking is critically rare in humans, and over the years my smugness has seemingly transubstantiated into a mixture of sorrow, disgust, and frustration. There's no way I can deny it. It's not organized religion that's at fault here. It's human nature, flaws in human cognition. It's the human need to create safe orthodoxy, a folio of beliefs, a dossier of judgments, in order to render the world less capricious and less complex, and to give it the illusion of structure. We all do it. We're made this way. So many intellectual, left-leaning, Sunday Times-reading, NPR-listening folks are, as John McWhorter points out in his excellent book, Woke Racism, basically following a religion as well. No questioning of their orthodoxy is tolerated either, and they often support opinions, social movements, legislation that they have only a passing familiarity with, a familiarity born of the casual perusal of headlines and stories picked from their self-selected siloed media and their equally selective social media feeds. But to be fair, let's look at it from the other side. If I'd sent a message to someone inviting them to participate in my organization and they'd written back that they hated all Jews or wanted all black people jailed, or as one Jamaican former employee of mine once said, that all gay people should be burned at the stake, a comment that severed his employment and our friendship, yeah, it'd be quite understandable if they shunned me entirely. So perhaps this woman thought I was saying something equally heinous and bigoted. To be equally fair, the only problem is I wasn't, and the podcast I'd pointed her to made that clear. Not that I think there's much chance she actually listened to it. We all do have the right, in fact, I'd say the duty, to reject and yes, shun people promoting violence, bigotry, and other equally serious transgressions. But I only spoke to her about my feelings on a very narrow issue, trans women in sports. I was hardly calling for the abolition of trans people's rights. In fact, as stated in my podcast, I thoroughly support their rights to get married, have kids, and not be discriminated against in housing, employment, etc. And I also stated there that I'm absolutely fine with transgender people having their own sports competitions, from local schools to the Olympics. But whether it was what I wrote her or my podcast, my opinions were enough for me to be cast out from the garden. 
apparently for myself, just like J.K. Rowling, pointing out any real empirically observable realities, let alone realities that are in the realm of sports, actively discriminatory against others and may cause actual harm to their chosen careers and avocations, is apparently utterly beyond the pale and deserving of shunning. This is truly disturbing because in reality their requirement that we hew to their orthodoxy is one of the most horrific of Orwellian prescriptions imaginable. Daniel Radcliffe's comment perfectly exemplifies this authoritarian approach to speech, and it chills me to the bone. Why? Here's what he said. Quote, Transgender women are women. Any statement to the contrary erases the identity and dignity of transgender people and goes against all advice given by professional healthcare associations. End quote. That sounds high-minded, decent, civil on its face. It even signals the medical establishment to buttress its argument. But let's look under the hood. This comment carries certain assumptions with it. The first is the worst of all, the one that sends that chill down my spine. And that is, no comment that differentiates trans women from biological women is acceptable. Which I believe he'd probably handily extend in true knee-jerk fashion to, no comment that is at all critical of or even seeks to differentiate in any way any person on the short end of some so-called power differential is acceptable. Either way, this is not only utterly unworkable given intersectional complexities, it's the textbook, fascistic, lockstep approach that some on the right and some on the left have adopted in many instances and circumstances. Elide all differences or suppress any negative facts, however true as the case may be, and then shame others into silence on said inconvenient truths, even if those truths are severely disadvantaging another historically disadvantaged group, in this case, biological women. The truth is, the comment could be about anything, from questioning affirmative action or critical race theory, discussing the history of Native American cannibalism and human sacrifice, the relative merits of capitalism versus socialism, to the tactics of various movements from trade unions to women's suffrage, to the Black Panthers, to the GOP. And it could come from the right or the left, and I wouldn't give a damn. No matter what it was in reference to and whomever it was aimed at, it is antithetical not only to American ideals on freedom of speech, but much more importantly to ideals of intellectual inquiry and civic discourse, ideals I once hoped would become universal, but clearly won't anytime soon. The attitude that no dissent from the group's orthodoxy will be brooked is foundational to Stalin, Hitler, Mussolini, Mao, Pol Pot and so many other dictators and despots. It is also a lax, simplistic, reductive, intellectually vacuous view, one promulgated consciously by some and merely adopted unconsciously as a result of peer pressure-induced groupthink by others, all over the political spectrum. It is beyond wrongheaded. It is beyond dangerous. It is deeply corrosive to the best attributes that humans are capable of, reason, civility, differential thinking, and perhaps most of all, intellectual flexibility. Then we come to the most mindless, knee-jerk aspect of Radcliffe's entire statement, namely that this supposedly horrific act of delineating differences goes against, quote, all advice given by professional healthcare associations, end quote. I have a few things to say about this. One, I would say, if these associations really believe this, they've been suckered. People who are too fragile to stand an honest discussion about things they disagree with, when that discussion is held in a civil manner, are either just performatively crying wolf, or they need serious therapy and may not be able to adequately function independently in human society. 
whether it's black people objecting to the Chinese word nega being used in a Chinese language class because it happens to sound somewhat similar to the N-word, or conservatives apoplectic that, oh my God, black people are kneeling for racial justice during the Pledge of Allegiance, or the millions of evangelicals wringing their hands and remonstrating that there's a horrifically offensive war on Christmas going on when people say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. Or trans people insisting that if you don't call them by their preferred pronoun, you are committing a horrific act of abusive hate speech. People need to get a grip and cut the crap. You cannot be protected from every nasty, threatening, or uncomfortable word, let alone reasoned civic criticism, whether by word or deed. In fact, you shouldn't be, not if you want to be prepared for life in the real world. Life's tough, and people can be nasty. But these people aren't even melting down over nastiness. Oh no, they're inhabiting a victim consciousness that is self-defeating and begs the world to infantilize them, to treat them as precious, fragile snowflakes. I, for one, refuse to do so. And you can call me a kike, a cracker, a breeder. Yes, I and my wife and young children were all disparaged as such once at a gay rights march. And I don't care. You can even paint paintings with swastikas. I'll survive. I am not wrapped in tissue paper and bubble wrap. In fact, I've endured far worse. I was repeatedly ridiculed, chased, bullied, and beaten as one of the first Jewish kids, and the one with the biggest mouth, in my predominantly Arab-Italian-Irish neighborhood in Brooklyn. And I swear to God I was less damaged by those experiences than these people purport to be from one verbal slight, or worse, from one foreign language sound-alike supposed invented verbal slight. And lest you remind me once more, it's power dynamic, Samuel. You're the straight white guy, remember? Mm, no. The friends I have of color and the LGBTQ friends I have are empowered not fragile snowflakes. There is no victim consciousness among them. Yes, they are acutely aware of white supremacism, homophobia, and other injustices, and they care about them, but their concerns are not the center, the defining attribute of their identities. They're too busy living full, rich, powerful lives. Yes, they strive for justice, but they take no shit, and you will not find them wallowing in faux fragility. So, weeping evangelicals, people of any particular color or religion or sexual or gender orientation freaking out about epithets, and even about words from other languages that vaguely resemble epithets, I'm not buying it. Grow a pair, or as our dear departed Betty White might have said, grow a pussy. John McWhorter is right. This is all performative. These people's peers applaud their real and imagined victimization, their protestations of suffering. Their social network enshrines this powerless stance and the demand that the entire world twist itself into knots to, oh my God, never ever make these poor delicate creatures unhappy or even vaguely uncomfortable. And Mr. Radcliffe, one more thing about those professional healthcare associations you trumpet. Until 1973, homosexuality was described in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association, as a pathology, a mental illness. As a human whose bisexual brother died a slow, agonizing, and horrible death from AIDS while the world, due to centuries of the kind of bigotry the DSM espoused, shrugged its fucking shoulders, I take exception to that. But I'm not crushed by your massive insensitivity towards gay history, gay people, and those that love them, Mr. Radcliffe. I'll need no smelling salts. I'm an adult, and I can take conversations and attitudes I find repugnant. Life is full of them, and as we've seen, what is repugnant is truly in the eye of the beholder. 
But whomever is doing the beholding, they all too often have one requirement, that those who dare question their views be excommunicated. Or perhaps we should use the word Amna Khalid used to name her excellent podcast on this very subject. The podcast is called Banished. And that's precisely what happens when you run afoul of a group's belief system, unless you are vanishingly lucky enough to find a few souls who are genuinely curious, genuinely capable of self-doubt and introspection, and genuinely up for reasoned discussion about complex, nuanced topics. It's just freakishly strange that I grew up with a bunch of people of that ilk. My mother and I would have very spirited discussions about all sorts of stuff, Sometimes voices would be raised, but not in anger, merely in passion and excitement. And my father, stepmother, and I would similarly engage on many topics, although my stepmother would become oddly doctrinaire if I questioned any of the logical fallacies and polemical excesses of second-wave feminism. And so off to college I went expecting to find open minds, intellectual curiosity, and yes, the ability to have highly spirited discussions that contained no rancor and elicited no personal attacks. Boy, was I surprised. They existed, but they were few and far between. I've never grown out of that surprise. Instead, it's grown exponentially as so many have steadily become more censorious and ever more performatively fragile. The world has become more and more intolerant of the discussion and examination of divergent viewpoints held by people of good faith, and I've utterly failed to adapt, and thank God for that. But I also have to laugh, because in some ways the joke's on me. I rail against belief perseverance, but I clearly suffer from it. Time after time, I think that reasoned civil discussion can sway people and engender deeper, more nuanced looks at issues and problems that are often portrayed in starkly simplistic terms. Each time this is empirically disproven, I double down and try again, with friends, through social media, and indeed on this podcast. I've been bemused by this intolerance at least since my college days, but I just never seem to get over my shock. Maybe it's my Myers-Briggs personality type, INFP called the idealist. But whatever the reason, time after time I go to the well only to find it dry, and yet I cannot give up my religious faith in the power of reason. If I had, you wouldn't be listening to me right now. But you are. You exist. I exist. Amna Khalid and John McWhorter exist, and they have readers and listeners. And I have a few like-minded friends. Not like-minded in that we agree on everything, but in that we can passionately discuss topics we often disagree about, with civility and nuance, and learn from each other, and sometimes even change each other's minds. There have to be others out there. Help me find them. Post a review of this podcast on iTunes. Share it with your friends. Subscribe to it on the platform of your choice. You can find the entire list of platforms and other content on thedailyscreamer.com. P.S. Don't lose all hope. In an upcoming series of interviews on this podcast, I'm going to explore the questions. Can we really change anyone's mind beyond their cognitive biases in a way that is ethical, i.e. not propaganda based on fear and greed? And if so, what are the most promising ideas and techniques available to us? Thanks for listening, and until next time, be good to your neighbor. The Cognitive Dissident is written, recorded, voiced, mixed, and produced by me, Samuel Claiborne, for Disreputable Media. The music for this podcast is from my latest album, entitled Love, Lust, and Genocide, available on digital streaming and purchasing platforms all over the place. 
Please visit thedailyscreamer.com for more content. And please like and subscribe to this podcast and consider donating to our Patreon fund to help us continue the work of questioning assumptions, slaughtering sacred cows, and calling out nude emperors. Thanks for listening.